First, it's time for our regular post-mortem on the body politic in Britain with none other than Mr Dunt. Ian, of course, is... uh, the British, our British political expert and a columnist for iNews. G'day, Ian. Let's uh, start talking politics of the U-turn. Labor's uh, Keir Starmer has backed away from their signature $28 billion green fund. Yeah, it's not been a great week for Labor, actually. And they're, they're a little bit all over the place. So this was sort of one of the few things you could point to in Labour's policy programme that was genuinely radical and country-altering. It was their attempt to basically decarbonise the grid by 2030. Huge net zero intervention. I mean, the kind of thing that you really have to put the economy on a war footing for. Um, And a big admission of market failure really in this area of like no the state is going to get involved we're going to borrow money a lot of money and we're going to create british jobs and we're therefore going to get to net zero it was this way of combining sort of traditional working class concerns with you know more sort of current progressive you know climate change concerns um the trouble is that Labour is a very, very cautious beast under Keir Starmer. And that is an electoral strategy. It is the small target strategy. You take whatever attacks you think the Tories might throw at you and you make the target as small as possible so they can't hit it. And what that typically entails is trying to eradicate dividing lines between the party, trying to prevent the Tories from being able to say, well, there's a controversy around this area and we're on the right side of the issue. So there's been a lot of pressure on that 28 billion. The Tories have been taking every opportunity they can to say, well, this means tax rises. This means you can't trust Labour with the economy. Absurd, of course, after Brexit and Liz Truss to have the Conservatives saying you can't trust someone else with the economy. But nevertheless, they've been, they've been saying it. And finally this week, uh, Labour basically gave up on that 28 billion number. What, they really what, what excuse panicked. did Starmer give? It's half true and half false. What they basically said was, look, we're fiscally responsible and we want to spend the 28 billion. Given what Liz Truss did to the economy, we no longer have the financial ability to do this. So, you know, we need to get in. We're still concerned with net zero. We're still going to fight for climate change. We just can't put that number on it because the books have changed as a result of what Liz Truss did. And it's true that Liz Truss did tremendous amounts of damage to the economy. However, It is not quite true, because you can always say, if you're Keir Starmer, well, fine, look, we're going to borrow where possible, and we're going to put up taxes if we need to, in order to address climate change. But of course, he doesn't have the political, well, I suppose, confidence on the one hand, and bravery on the other, to try and make that radical case for what needs doing, what objectively must take place if we're to deal with climate change. So because of his caution, and possibly because of a lack of ideological zeal, you know, he is now backing away from that pledge, or at the very least, the number that was attached to that pledge. What will that do to the morale of party members and backers? It is damaging. You know, the problem really is... Okay, look, on the one hand, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of numbers in politics. You know, people come out and they say, we need, a, we need another 100,000 policemen. And you're like, why that number? You know, why, why on earth would it be 100,000? Like, you know, the better question to ask yourself is, what is it that we want to achieve? And then once we start calculating that, how many new police officers, for instance, would we need in order to do that? So the 28 billion in and of itself as a totemic number was not that helpful. However, 
It's very helpful to go into an election that you are likely to win to secure a big, firm, hard mandate for radical action on climate change. And incidentally, to say to the Treasury, to say to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the civil servants in the Treasury, who are usually very short-sighted in their rather laissez-faire Frederick Hayek assessments, to say, look, we are going to borrow money for this. This is not something that you can keep on penny-pinching on. It has to be done. The message is there. And off the end of that, you then get this sense, I think, from from the left of the Labour Party, but also people, you know, like me, who would consider themselves sort of centre-left, of what exactly is Labour for if it's unprepared to make any kind of radical proposition at all? You don't have to go all the way and be sort of Jeremy Corbyn and bring out Mao's red book in the middle of a parliamentary debate, but it does help if you can demonstrate radical proposals and a willingness to deliver on them. And at the uh, moment, it's it very has to be interesting said, the caution that, is winning out. Sorry, but it's very interesting that you use that phrase, what is Labour for? Because it's a question we hear echoing around in Australia. Uh, that does not surprise me, actually. And there is a sense of um, sort of Western retreat in the face of right-wing framing of debates. So that the left-wing party often sort of shrinks itself into this much smaller position in order to be able to challenge them electorally. I mean, you look at what's happening. This climate change debate right now in Europe is following the same exact pattern of what we're seeing in the UK. This sudden fright at voters getting upset about the cost of addressing climate change, about the impacts that it will have on industrial communities, this sudden uh, retreat in the face of populist right parties and mainstream conservative parties saying, oh, isn't it very expensive, you know, action on climate change? And a left-wing inability to challenge that narrative and instead just try to shrink yourself into a shape where you think you can win despite it. So that is a broad Western problem that I think we see everywhere, apart from, funnily enough, the US, where Joe Biden has been very very, very aggressive and robust in his handling of this issue, despite the fact that most left-wingers seem to think of him as quite a light, light-hearted sort of person. Another U-turn earlier in the week, and it involves a Labour candidate and the Gaza conflict. Yeah, the Labour candidate is Azar Ali. He was the Labour candidate in the Rochdale by-election. This should be a, a safe Labour seat. It's coming up um, for a vote very soon. Um, during his selection process, which is the meeting by party members when they pick who's going to be the local candidate, he came up with a conspiracy theory, which was that, you know, the October attacks by Hamas were in fact orchestrated by Israel in order to justify their invasion of Gaza. In, in, this came out this week rather irritatingly. If it had come out before he'd been selected, things might have been rather different. And Labour was sort of put in this impossible position. Because on the one hand, you legally cannot get rid of him. He is now formally the candidate, so they didn't have room to budge. On the other, they need to demonstrate that they will address anti-Semitism wherever it pops up its head because of the legacy of the Corbyn years. So that left them stuck in this position of saying, well, look, he's apologised. We think he's, he's owned his mistake. We're standing by him until last night. Last night, new audio files emerged. We haven't heard them yet, but we know that they exist, of him saying all sorts of other mucky stuff. And finally, Labour said, you know what, that's it, we're, we're cutting our ties. However, the mess that that leaves them with, that means there's going to be a by-election where he will still run under the Labour candidate sign. That's, nothing can be done to change it, but he will not have the party whip. They will not be putting any resources behind him. It is an absolute and total mess that they have found themselves in. So a 20-point lead in the polls won't be much help? No, I think it will. I mean, the truth is the public 
I think probably pay attention to about one political event a year maximum. You know, something really big, really striking, really vivid that fundamentally alter and, and plays into an existing narrative that they have. You know, back in the day, the Tories had two of those in one year. They had Partygate with Boris Johnson and then they had Liz Truss. And these became these seismic moments where the public opinion of the government changed completely and provided that 20-point lead to Labour. None of these stories that we're talking about fit into that category. Most people, not broken political nerds like myself or like you for that matter, uh, but most people will completely ignore them and it won't affect the lead. What it does is it raises questions about Labour. Just how cautious is Keir Starmer? Does he actually have any ideological convictions? Even if he does have those convictions, will he actually have the steel, the backbone to deliver on them in government? Or is he just a little bit too cautious to be able to do that? And finally, how attuned is his political antenna? Is he able to spot these problems like the Ali problem coming and react decisively? Or does he leave it too late and take the political damage? And those questions will define Labour's first term in power. Ian, this is not the first dumping over Gaza. No, Gaza is an existential problem for the Labour Party, really, because of its electoral base. I mean, the vast majority of Muslims in Britain vote for the Labour Party um, and the vast majority of Muslims as well as, and to be honest, yeah, it's much broader than that. It's also just the left wing in Britain is powerfully pro-Palestine and aghast really what is happening there right now. I think everyone's aghast. I mean, even the Conservative Foreign Secretary, Lord David Cameron, is talking in very, very robust terms about the the lack of wisdom and the lack of decency, really, in the manner in which Israel is conducting itself at the moment. Nevertheless, it's profoundly damaging for Labour. I mean, in that uh, by-election in Rochdale, we're seeing George Galloway. He's a communist. He's a former Labour Party MP. He's a Putin apologist. It's very pro-Palestine, going out there for his respect party, just trying to hoover up disaffected Muslim votes to turn it against the Labour Party. So all of this is very acute for Labour. It's very, very acute indeed. Ian, meanwhile, the Tories have also had a, well, a troublesome time regarding uh, Sunak. Oh, yeah. I mean, just just because Labour's having a bad week doesn't mean that the Conservatives can't have a worse one. To give you an impression of it, over the course of this week, I mean, starting on Wednesday, inflation stats, Thursday, uh, GDP figures. The, The inflation stats are expected to show that inflation is actually rising in Britain rather than falling, bucking the trend and basically what Sunak needs to win an election. The GDP figures are expected to confirm that Britain is now officially in a recession. And even if it isn't, it's stagnating so hard and for so long that it might as well be a recession. And then on Friday, we get two by-elections, Wellingborough and Kingswood. They're both super solid, very safe, conservative seats, have been for generations, and both of them are likely to go Labour. There's not even really... I mean, it's like watching an animal die in the glare of the sun. There's not even really a conservative election campaign. Like, I mean, you look in Wellingborough and Kingswood, for that matter, they're barely bothering to walk around dropping off leaflets. It's like they're sort of wilting. It's, it's, it's like they're, they're almost decaying in front of your eyes as a functioning political party. I can, so, yeah, I can hear the compassion in your voice, Ian. Yes, as you can imagine, I'm deeply concerned and I stay up late at nights wondering what it is like for them on an emotional and a spiritual basis. So, I mean, this is the thing, you know, we could look at Labour and, and think like, 
you're making unforced errors here and you haven't been doing that for a while so it's disturbing to see you do it but none of it compares to the kind of existential crisis that the Conservatives are facing at the moment. Ian, before I let you go and staying with the Tories, the Rwanda plan that uh, we spoke about last time, it's in the Lords this week. What's the latest? It's in the Lords and... You know, if, if our political culture in this country was even remotely sane, the things that were being admitted in the Lords would be the defining moments of the debate over Rwanda. Instead, we completely ignore them because our debate is not sane and talk about what some chuntering reactionary right winger is saying on the Tory party and the Conservatives. What's actually been admitted is, is amazing. The government came forward with a treaty, said we're going to implement these changes to the asylum system in Rwanda. Therefore, it is safe. Therefore, we're going to force our courts to consider it safe. Therefore, we can start the flights to Rwanda. Now, several uh, lords, most of them former lawyers, then asked the government over and over, well, exactly how far have these changes gone to the asylum system in Rwanda? You need, you know, primary legislation. You need to hire judges, to hire experts, to sort out a monitoring system. Exactly what have you achieved? And they finally admitted last night that they have only just started implementing those safeguards. Now, that destroys the logic of the government position. If their position was that it is safe because of the changes they are making and they have not yet made those changes, Rwanda cannot possibly be safe. But because this is happening in the Lords and because of the infantile nature of our media here, there's hardly any pickup of this admission which just completely detonates the government's case. It's dispiriting, but at least somewhere in the British system, we are finding out what the truth of the situation is. Good on you, Ian. Ian Dunn, columnist for iNews. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.